We're going to continue to walk through the book of Acts as we've been doing over the last several weeks together. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you have them uh, there in front of you or a phone in front of you, something that you can look at to follow along with us. We're going to look at a very familiar account inside of the book of Acts this morning. It's Acts chapter 9 and what we know as, as Saul's conversion. Uh, it's important for us as we begin to read in Acts chapter 9 verse 1 to be reminded of Saul and we're going to do that just by taking a few verses in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8 and then we're going to jump over to verse 9. This morning as we continue to look at, at Saul, I want us to be reminded of some things, especially as, uh, as we come and we look at a conversion experience that is uh, quite unlike many conversion experience that we ourselves have had. When we look at someone's conversion experience like Saul, from Saul to Paul or, or from an enemy of the cross to a friend of the cross, sometimes we can make Saul's conversion experience a greater experience maybe than, than we expect in the world today. Or, or we may look to Saul's conversion experience and, and we may say things like, well, I see how God converted Saul to Paul, but I'm not sure that, that God still converts people like Saul today. Or that God still converts people like Saul in our churches and, and even in our time. We may even say things, maybe not exactly this way, but we, we may say things like, men like Saul have gone too far from God. Men like Saul have wandered too far into the darkness and, and we wonder maybe if they can be rescued or converted as we, as we have testified inside of Scripture today. Even as we look not only of, of Saul's conversion, but last week as we talked about this Ethiopian eunuch and how the Ethiopian eunuch who was, uh, was a really important person, who was responsible for the treasury in, in the country, we, we see this man who had the, the, the scroll of Isaiah before him and, and we see that as a miraculous display of God's providence. God had put everything in place. We may look at that conversion experience and say, God just doesn't do things like that anymore. We look maybe at the, the, the week before, Simon the Magician, and, and Simon the Magician came, of course, to those disciples, and, and he wanted to know the gospel, but when he got to the gospel experience, he, of course, we know, wouldn't accept what had been offered to him. It may be that when we look at these conversion experiences, that we look at this example of Saul becoming Paul, or this example of the Ethiopian eunuch surrendering his life to the gospel experience, we may, we may look at this and make a hero out of the wrong person. We may look at it and say, look at Saul. Saul was willing to convert. He was willing to leave his old life behind and to enter into this new life. I was reading this week a book by Tony Morita from the book of Acts, and Tony Morita makes this statement. He says, this passage of Scripture elevates our view of God's converting power. You see, when we read this passage of Scripture in just a moment, Acts chapter 9, when we look at this passage of Scripture and this conversion in particular, we see not Saul's willingness to submit, though that's necessary. We see not this hero of Saul who became Paul, what we should see when we read Acts chapter 9 is the power and the grace of a converted sinner 
and the power and the grace that our Lord is willing to offer, not only to the Ethiopian eunuch, but also in this case to Saul. We see the power of the Lord. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, the hero of Acts chapter 9 is not Saul. The hero of Acts chapter 9 is God and His grace. Paul is not responsible for his own conversion experience, nor are we responsible for our own conversion experience. Instead, Jesus does something miraculous in us just like He has done in Acts chapter 9 with Saul. So let's begin reading. Acts chapter 8, just a few verses, and then we'll jump over to 9. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture this morning, but it's necessary that you see each and every part of this account. Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 1, says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church... And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and, and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil has he, he has done to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying, hand, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? 
And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. God, help us this morning as we walk through this passage of Scripture together, Lord. We ask that you would remind us, God, that your conversion work in the life of Saul, God, is an example to us, God, of your power and of your grace. God, this shows us, this shows us how great your conversion ability is in the life of a man, even like this one. God, remind us, God, we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we found Simon the magician, we found the man who was seeking Jesus. When we found the Ethiopian eunuch, again, we would say we found a man who was seeking the message of Isaiah. And then we come to a man in Acts chapter 9, in the beginning verses of chapter 8, we come to a man who is not seeking Jesus, but instead who is seeking to rid the world of the message of Jesus. You see, when we look at Simon the magician and we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, we've talked about their religious belief systems. I told you last week that the Ethiopian eunuch was probably a believer in some syncretist idea where he had taken his heritage religion and, and mixed it with Judaism and come up with his own idea of what religion actually was. And we see that Simon the magician was dependent upon his own self and his own ability, so much so that he asked the apostles if he could pay for the power of the Holy Spirit so that he himself could reach out into the world and do magic among the people. But we come across Saul. Saul is a man who is deeply religious. We would even say, and the first point that in my message this morning is that Saul was a religious zealot. Saul believed deeply in what he was doing. Saul went about all of Jerusalem and the outlying areas accomplishing what he believed that the gospel of the law had told him to do. And in the midst of his religious beliefs, he was standing in opposition to Jesus. It's interesting to me in verse chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This word usage in verse 1 is, is really fascinating to me. This idea of breathing threats. When I think of breathing and the idea of breathing given to us inside of the word, I think about that encouragement that we get from Timothy that tells us that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And so there's great power in the breath of God. And even here we have this idea of Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples. I want you to understand that that this is, not, this is not breathing or throwing threats around like we do. It's not, it's not tossing threats around to Ole Miss fans at Thanksgiving. Right? It's not throwing threats around to, to the team that you don't like and the team that, that the other person does like. This idea of breathing threats paints a picture for the audience that is reading this originally. This idea of breathing is defined like this, like a wild beast that snorts before it attacks. Bulls paw the earth and snort before charging in the bull ring. And in order to snort, they must first inhale. This is the image that Luke is giving us to describe the intensity of Saul's fierce hostility as he is making his way to Damascus. Saul is not just going to call the believers names. 
Saul is going to destroy the believers that he can encounter. And he is doing this because he was a religious zealot. His life was wrapped up in obedience to the law, so much so that he could not stand to see these people who were teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that he believed. Isn't it interesting that this man who is so obedient to the law, this man who is so dedicated to the Old Testament teaching, he missed the very fulfillment of the very religion that he was pressing forward. See, this is interesting for us because none of us probably would call ourselves religious zealots. None of us would probably say that we're religious zealots. But we find a man here who is so dedicated to the law that he misses the gospel. And if we are not careful, if we are not careful as New Testament believers, we may find ourselves much like Paul and we may be so dedicated to our law that we miss the gospel as well. We may be so concerned about our own set of religious do's and don'ts that we miss the grace that comes from the work of Jesus. We more than likely wouldn't say that our religious zeal is for the, the law of the old covenant. Yet, just like the Jews, we often set up rules that overcome the love and the grace and the compassion of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm going to say this is a time where churches will be tested. I think even us as a church, we will be tested in this as we move forward. We're going to be tested whether or not as we begin to come back together if we are more concerned about the law concerning when churches meet, how often they meet, more so than we are the compassion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, going, to be, we're going to be tested here. Are we going to deal, dig in our heels and say this is when the church is supposed to meet? No matter what harm may come to our neighbors around us, this is the way that we're supposed to meet, and we will miss the grace and the love and the compassion of the gospel. You see, it may be that in our own lives, we find ourselves as what we would call not a religious zealot, but we may find ourselves becoming legalist. Legalist in the traditions of man legalists in the ways that we believe that things ought to be done as a church. And if we find ourselves there, we find ourselves right where Saul is, a religious zealot. We must do things this way, or we must do things that way. But for the gospel follower, we don't, we don't live there. Where we live is not the, what do the rules say that we should obey, but instead how can we do what Jesus has asked us to do? Be reminded of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You see, religious zealots or legalists will always be more worried about the rules than they will be the heart of the ruler. And so while we wouldn't set ourselves on the same side as Saul, I'm so afraid that the church today is actually on the side of Saul. We're religious zealots, but we miss the grace and the love and the compassion of Jesus. So we find Paul, a man who is devout with the law. Second point is, we find Saul was then confronted by Jesus. This is that conversion account that you all know that we're all so familiar with this conversion account. 
This man with religious zeal meets the grace of God on the road to Damascus and Saul becomes Paul and, and, and the enemy of the cross becomes the friend of the cross. This account of conversion that we know of, of Saul and Paul, we can't forget. Not only should we, should we love this conversion story, should we celebrate this conversion story, we cannot forget that while this is Saul's story, this is our story as well. Even if you don't align yourself with a religious zealot or you don't say, I'm a legalist, we need to be reminded that we stand exactly where Saul stood as he was walking down that road to Damascus. There's no doubt in our minds that we would say, we would declare without any hesitation that Saul was an enemy of the cross. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. They give you this idea that Saul was an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And while many of us would look to Saul and we would say, well, Saul is much more sinful than we are. Saul's sin is greater than our sin. Saul has gone to a place deeper than the place that I have personally gone. We need to be reminded that where Saul stood before his conversion experience is the exact same place that we stand before our conversion experience. Indeed, Saul was an enemy of the cross. But so are we. So are we if we are not saved. So are we if we have not experienced the gracious salvation of Jesus Christ. Later on, Paul would write a letter to the church in Philippi. And in chapter 3 of that letter that he wrote to them, he says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Do you hear what Paul says? Paul says there are many people who are lost there are many people that their end is their, their destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in their own shame. They set their minds on earthly things. What does Paul say? He says those people are enemies of the cross of Christ. Without Jesus, without the gospel, we stand right where Paul stood. We stand as enemies of the cross. Just as Saul did, if we have not encountered Jesus and we do not have fellowship with him, then we are an enemy of the cross. You are either with me or you are against me. We are enemies if we have not submitted to the gracious gospel of Jesus. And so, since we stand where Saul does, since Saul stood in need of a gospel encounter, he had an encounter with God. How miraculous is this that the gospel encounter for Saul was, was he was blinded for three days that he was, he was shut inside of a house and he could not see. It says that he, he did not eat or he did not drink for those three days, so bothered by this encounter with God that he could not eat and he could not drink. 
It's one of those great accounts. Again, it's an amazing account. And most of us that are saved, we would say that we didn't have a bright light on the road. We didn't have a blinding experience like Saul experienced. And while it's not the manner in which we met Jesus, we need to be reminded as New Testament followers, while this is not the way that we met him, if you have been redeemed, you in fact have had an encounter with Jesus. John chapter 6 and verse 44 says, The Spirit draws men to the Lord. You see, while we don't see on a road a bright light in our eyes that blinds us, those of us that can testify to salvation in Jesus Christ, we can testify to that same feeling that Saul had in that house for those three days. That eating at our soul, that drawing us unto the Lord that conviction experience of the Holy Spirit. I didn't meet Jesus on the road, but I met the power of the Spirit in my soul. All of us, if we have a salvation testimony, it begins with the Holy Spirit drawing us unto Himself, just like God just like Jesus, just like that spirit did on that road to Damascus. They drew Saul unto himself, and he was converted. See, Saul's conversion experience is not unlike our conversion experience. It is a work of God in our lives. It's a work that we should praise God for. Paul's conversion came from an encounter with Jesus, but I want you to see finally this morning that Paul was not alone in this experience. Third, Paul became obedient with others. We didn't read all of the account, but if you'll continue to read on in chapter 9, you'll see in the, in the, the latter part of that chapter, particularly verses 26 through verse 31, also in the latter part of verse 8 and through verse 18, when you read this account, you can't hear, help but hear how God strategically placed followers of Jesus in the life of Paul to help him. Like last week, when that Ethiopian eunuch had that scroll of Isaiah, but he didn't know what it said. So, Philip came and helped him. And he helped him. He helped him understand what the Scripture said. And so he said, what's preventing me from being baptized? He obediently walked into that water. The same is true here with Paul. Paul was blinded by Jesus. He knew it. He went back to the home. He did not sit and wait by himself. There were believers there. You see, there were believers there to help him along the way. None of us would say that Ananias is what saved Saul. None of us would say that we, we, should, we should congratulate Judas for giving sa salvation unto Saul, or we should congratulate Ananias for offering salvation unto Saul. None of those men saved him. It was only by a work of the Lord Jesus Christ that Saul was converted, as is our testimony. But each of us, we can look back and we can be reminded of men and women in our lives who helped us along the way. We remember maybe the person that, that, that shared the gospel with us the moment that we responded to the gospel. We remember those people along our journey that helped us understand the message of the gospel and the word of God. 
We can remember those people who, like Ananias, came and, and helped discern what God was doing in our lives in the moment of a difficulty. We, we're reminded of people like Barnabas who, who came to our side to support us when nobody else would support us like Barnabas did to Paul. No, there is, there is no salvation found in Barnabas. There is no salvation found in Judas. There is no salvation found in Ananias. And yet God still uses men and women in our lives to help lead us towards obedience. You are bringing people to your mind, even in this moment, that have helped you along the way. And in this example, we're reminded again that a vital part of our spiritual walk is other believers. You know, I think it's why we're so thirsty to gather together again. I think it's why our faith over the last nine to ten weeks has been so anemic and so lacking. It's because we need other people to nourish us. We need other people to worship with. We need other people to teach us. We need other people to share with. We need other people to fellowship with. We need other people to worship with. We need this. Paul needed it in his conversion experience and his discipleship, just as the Ethiopian eunuch did as well. And what do we see Paul doing by example? Paul moves on with his life and he takes young men under his wing. And then he invests in Titus and he invests in Timothy. Because Paul understood from the very beginning of his conversion experience that if he was going to be obedient, it was going to be because other people were speaking into his life and walking with him. Paul serves as an example for us. We stand right where Paul stood before his conversion as enemies of the cross. He serves as us an example of a shared salvation experience. Just as he had an encounter with Jesus, we too must testify that we've had an encounter with Jesus through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the work in, his, in our lives. He models for us. He's an example for us of our shared, continued walk with Christ. You cannot do this by yourself. We'll all be tested in this area in the next few weeks. As we begin to talk about, but not only talk about, but have the ability to come back together, we'll determine whether or not the church really needed each other. We'll determine how spiritually anemic we've become because of our absence from one another. There's no doubt you can't look anywhere inside of Scripture and see a man living on an island as a believer by himself. It's only inside of community that we grow in our faith. Paul is an example of that. This morning, I think there are a couple of ways that you can respond. One, I think if you stand as an enemy of the cross... Absolutely, you need to know that you can be saved. And the Spirit may be nudging you even this morning. The Spirit may be keeping you from eating and drinking as Saul was in Judas's home. You need to be saved. You need to surrender to him in faith. Secondly, I think that we might need to be reminded this morning of how special each other is in our journey. 
You are not to be alone. We need each other desperately. And some of us need to commit to the church of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how you need to respond today, I want to remind you that you can respond this morning, even if you're not here with us, you can respond through a link that's being posted on the Facebook right now. You can go to that link and you can respond through filling out that form. You can respond by calling me, Steve Corbin, or anyone else. You can text us and let us know that you need to respond that way this morning. Steve and the rest of the worship team are going to come back up and we're going to sing, we're going to sing two more worship songs together. As we're worshiping with one another, I pray the Holy Spirit will move among us. God, we ask that you remind us, Lord, that we are no different than Saul. We are enemies of the cross. And God, what this is a picture of for us, Lord, is, is how great your converting power is. God, we are no different, Lord. We were once enemies of the cross, but after an encounter with Jesus, we have been saved. And now, God, like Saul, we are greatly dependent. We're greatly dependent on one another for our discipleship. God, I pray like that Ethiopian eunuch, we would walk alongside someone like Philip who could explain the scriptures with us. Lord, I pray like Saul, God, we would, we would find encouragement, encouragement and nourishment, God, from people like Ananias in our lives and Barnabas in our lives. And God, as we're walking this road of spiritual maturity, I pray the time would come when we would invest, Lord, in a Timothy and a Titus, God, recognizing that they need us and we need them, Lord. God, whatever it is that people need to do this morning, whatever response that they need to make, God, I pray that they would... They would feel so convicted by the Holy Spirit today, Lord, that they would respond as we sing and as we worship again this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.